Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 113. Last week we continued Jesus' prophetic imagery concerning the times leading up to the destruction of the temple. Um, and he brought in language such as the abomination of desolation, uh, which our Western church takes that in highly supercharged eschatological terms. Yeah. Um, but Jesus was arguing that it's much more of the like rejection of Messiah, the unrepentance that the nation seemed to evoke or uh, showcase that led to this desolation of destruction by the Roman Empire uh, and their subsequent exile and all kinds of other imagery that is concerning that he says that the people are going to experience like people running to the mountains and not being able to go back to their houses and gather things because of this destruction that's incoming. Like they need time when they leave, like hope, hoping that it's not going to be in the winter or on the Sabbath and needing to watch out for women who are pregnant. It's just, it's, it's tough stuff. And you can see why Jesus was being so adamant on getting the disciples to hear this because this desolation that's coming for the nation is <laughs> it's not going to be good right. um, but then he moved on from that though uh, to answer their second question about the coming of the end of the age which is much more of a different picture concerning his second coming the the actual establishing of the messianic kingdom and when his banner is going to be raised and that trumpet is going to be blasted and it, there's going to be no doubt. It's like thunder and lightning. You you won't be able to not see it in the sky where people will be living and experiencing life. Uh, there will be no doubt that that is what is actually happening. Yeah. And, and all along the way, we've tried to say, look, we get it. We see that people are, you know, reading, seeing, hearing different things in this, we're trying to bring as much sense to it as we can. And you know what? We're going to keep trying to do that. But I got to tell you, this next little bit is another one that it makes it difficult. Okay? It's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's hard to make these things make complete sense. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read it. We'll talk. But uh, just hang with us, hear, hear what we got going on. So I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 to 35. We've got parallel text in Mark 13, 28 to 31, and Luke 21, 29 to 33. So here's Matthew. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, that's troublesome. There's difficulty in there. So first, let's, let's do this. Let's talk about the lesson of the fig tree, because that's not too confusing, okay? Let's do that before we get to the confusing bits. So I think we all understand that we can tell by the trees. Okay, it doesn't have to just be a fig tree. We can tell. The branches start to get tender. The leaves come out. We know the change of seasons is upon us. It's going to be summer soon. 
Now, in the same way that we can predict what's coming by what we see trees doing, we can predict what is coming by these big events that Jesus has been talking about. Now, in some sense, you could say, well, gosh, uh, it doesn't even matter if we're talking about the, uh, the events preceding the desolation of the temple and Jerusalem, or whether we're talking about those events preceding Jesus's return, same, the, the same lesson applies. We should be able to see them and know what's coming. Now, now in this case, at least in terms of the order of the text, it's like, okay, but this is the part where we were talking about his return. And in fact, it's even kind of explicit here because it says he is near at the gates. And I mean, I guess somebody could come back and say he, I don't know, he, Rome, or he, uh, Satan through Rome. I mean, you could do that, but but it seems like he's talking about he as in the Son of Man, which is weird, referring to himself in a third person. I don't know. It, anyway, side note, if we were to read Luke, I didn't read it, but but it specifically says that the kingdom is near. And so if it's the kingdom that is near, then he would be referring to the king, if we can leverage all of these together. So I'm just saying, we've got this lesson of the fig tree. We understand that it could easily be a lesson that applies to either event, both events, but we have suggestion in the text. No, we're, we've moved on to his return, his second coming, and we're still there. But if that's true... <laughs> then this becomes hard. All three Gospels include this phrase about this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Hmm. Talk about problematic. I mean, nothing from this most recent section, the things that we've talked about, the the, the actual second coming— None of that has taken place, at least as far as we know. We have nothing historically to point to that. So, uh, and, and my goodness, my own personal life experience, this kind of discrepancy, people have walked away from God for a lot less than this, okay? And Jesus, I mean, he even starts with that phrase that we, uh, early on, we, we actually kind of harped on quite a bit. Truly, I say to you, important stuff. So, man... I mean, if we're just being honest, and, and this is a difficulty. It's kind of hard. And so a number of people have tried a number of different ways to sort of reconcile this. I mean, the worst case is there are people that read this, and they just think, no, all of it's about the end times. Well, that sure doesn't help. But even us, our particular interpretation, we're stuck in the second coming, the end time, whatever, that this is just really hard. So so some people look at this and they go, well, no. Uh, see, what's happening is Jesus is taking a brief moment and he's referring back to the temple. He, he was talking about the temple for all that time. He segued into the end times, the second coming, and now he's just making a quick reference back because he's still contrasting the two, something like that. Okay, you know what? I can, act, I, I can see that. I, I'm not quite so sure that I buy it, but I mean, you know, we could put that in the maybe category. A second one is this. When he's referring to this generation, well, it's actually a reference to all of humanity. You know, kind of like, I guess what you would think it would be saying is something on the something along the lines of, hey, humanity is not going to be able to avoid this part of the story. Again, I guess that's plausible, but I don't know. That one feels pretty weak. Not really, not a fan of that one. And believe me, there are others, but now I'm going to skip to another. Uh, this one says, no, when he uses the phrase, this generation, what he's doing is referencing whatever generation that happens to be living when all of these end times kind of signs begin. So it, 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 isn't, it isn't suggesting that no one will 
die during the signs, only that the signs and Jesus' arrival, they're going to occur within a generation. That, that Greek word, you know, utos, I think it's pronounced. I don't know. I could be wrong. It's, I mean, the basic meaning is this, that, these, those, them, whatever. I mean, it could work that way. It, it, it could say that, no, it's, look, them, they, that generation, the one that's living then. See, the idea would be is that when Jesus is speaking of the destruction of the temple, he uses the phrase, this generation. And what he meant was the generation that was alive right there at that moment, listening to Jesus talking, okay, that generation. But now here, when Jesus is, he's talking about the sign of his return and the end of the age and all that, now he's using the phrase, this generation. Well, he's meaning the generation that is living when those signs begin. Now, I get the people that hear that and go, yeah, I don't know about that. Okay, I get you, but I'm going to say, given all the possibilities, so, I, you know, I kind of like that one. It actually, if, if, you, if you have that image in your head and you go back and read it, that doesn't, that doesn't feel too bad. That, that could be a thing. So I, I, I get it. You may or may not be convinced by any one of those. You may have your own idea that you think is so awesome and it's, you know, Paul's dumb because he's not bringing it up. Okay, maybe. I would say this. Somewhere in here, there is a right interpretation, even if we don't know what it is. <laughs> There's something. But Jesus, he, he emphasizes that by saying those words. Uh, he, everything that he has explained about these two big events, uh, all of his words, they are not going to pass away. Heaven and earth might pass away. In fact, we know at the end of the story, they will pass away. But his words won't. He means, simply, his words are true. And they are indeed going to come to pass. One way or another, whatever we're reading from Jesus here, these words do indeed make perfect sense. But this is one of those sections that's, you know, it's just admittedly a difficulty to come to a solid interpretation. But there you go. I've given you all I've got on those. Samuel, what do you think? I think that I struggle with it as well, um, and I think the the humble thing for me to do would be to try to not to conjure up some kind of answer to someone who may bring this up as a argument against the validity of Jesus's words, and be able to kind of say what you've said in the past on the how the the four gospel accounts aren't a 100% carbon copy match and how that actually reinforces the validity and accuracy of the accounts that they were coming from four different dynamic humans who experienced these events. And this one statement that Jesus said that we have a hard time interpreting shouldn't result in the throwing away of his entire ministry and influence on what he's done for the world. Yeah, and very much like people tried very hard to understand the scriptures and the coming of Messiah before it actually happened. And boy, they came up with some cool and amazing things. They were right so many times when it's almost, how could they be? How could they have gotten, you know, but they were wrong in a lot of other ways as well. Well, I think in some sense, we may be experiencing some of that. We're trying to understand the end. We're trying to understand things, but we've only got so much information. It's not super clear. And there are times like this when, man, I don't know, this just feels like it could could be confusing for for many. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so if we if we go on though, this is what's really interesting. In fact, are you, do you have anything else, Samuel? No. Okay. So let's look at this next part. It's in Matthew chapter twenty four, verses thirty. Uh, I'm sorry, it's one verse, verse thirty six, uh, and it's also Mark chapter thirteen, verses thirty two and thirty three. But since Mark actually gives us just a little bit more information, I'm going to sneak over and read from Mark. 
It says this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Okay, now before we actually start to, to look at that specifically, notice how, and just by the way, Matthew starts the same way, but concerning that day and hour, we're trying to figure out, man, did, did Jesus like slip back into talking about the, the temple and, 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 and then he is going to move back forward, back into the sign of the, or is he still talking about the end times or whatever? The funny thing is you get to this next part and it says, but concerning that day, it's possible you could look at this as, okay, so he was going back and, and talking just for a brief moment about the temple again, and now he's saying, but talking about the end time, right? So it's like you, you see the words being used to make the contrast, or you could look at it and, and be saying, no, he's, he's talking about the end times, but but he's still making the point, but even though I'm telling you this stuff, you need to know nobody knows the day or the hour, right? So it's like it doesn't clear it up. That that little bit of confusion that we're having can still be you you can try to apply these words in different scenarios and they look like they make sense. So so it's not like it's getting solidly cleared up. So anyway, let, let let's talk about that last little section. Even though we did have to spend some time earlier talking about that word immediately before, you know, was it actually indicating anything about time or was it just more like about sequence? You know, is it sort of time ambiguous or whatever? Jesus makes something about time very clear. We have no idea when this is going to come to pass. And when I say this, I'm talking about the sign of Jesus' return and the end of the age. We have no idea. No one knows. Not even Jesus himself. And I would say, I think that we could play this one out. Not Jesus as he's walking around here as a human 2,000 years ago. Not Jesus as he's ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father. No one knows the time except the Father. And so this, I think, a little bit, it kind of strengthens the idea that when Jesus says this generation, he isn't actually speaking of the generation that's standing in front of him, listening to him alive at the moment. He's talking about this generation as whatever one is alive at the moment when the signs begin type of thing. But, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's the way I see it. Now, uh, Luke adds something. He says, since, uh, I'm sorry, it isn't Luke, it's Mark. Mark adds that since we don't know when it will come, we must remain ever vigilant. We have to be on guard. On garde. Now, Samuel, what's another phrase for be on guard? Uh, pursuing God's qualities on the earth in our very lives through our actions. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of people want to look at this and they take, you know, like this armed conflict kind of image in their head. You know, I've, I've got to be a prayer warrior and I've got to, you know, tear down all these strongholds. Or whatever. On garde. I mean, good for you if that's your thing and you're doing it. You know, I'm sure we need everybody doing their part. But in this case, be on your guard. It's talking about pursuing righteousness, pursuing his will. And what else does he add? And keep awake. And that is be aware of what is going on around you. Now, earlier, I'm sure you remember this, talking about the lightning. It sounded like we couldn't miss it. So why do we have to be vigilant? Because the ultimate goal isn't to to simply recognize it when it's happening. That's not the point. 
I mean, it's great that we will be able to easily recognize it when it's happening, but the real goal is to be on the right team when it happens. You don't want to be caught up being the one that the birds are eating. You know what I'm hmm. saying? You, you want to be the one that's gathered in. That, that's what we should say. So we should be more interested in the work and the life of the kingdom than we are in the schedule of the kingdom. That's all I'm saying. So anyway, anything, Samuel? Yeah, I, just, I really like Mark's edition of verse 33 um, because I argue that it's it is in line with um the jewishness that jesus was accustomed to he lived his whole life with and what i mean by that is i've been reading a book in my spare time it's kind of like a survey or a summary of all the major tenets that are in the talmud and um there is this one section where the writer was talking about the relationship between this idea of the fear of the Lord and God's omnipresence. And the rabbinic thought is how in Jewish thought and society there is this overwhelming and prevailing thought or concept that God sees all. Like like you're never truly alone in your life in terms of what you do in public, what you do in private, and and God sees and understands every thought, every word, every action, every intention, and they use that as like a form of accountability on how they lived. Um, yeah, you know, and in our Western culture, like it almost gets played. I don't know, like comical like you i don't know sometimes i hear parents like you better not do that because you know you know god's always watching like i'm not saying (laughs) that that message isn't wrong but it just that doesn't get treated in the same way or with the same weight uh within jewish culture and it just i think jesus is leaning into that concept to say that like god sees and like you need to continue to let that be a part of your mind as you go forward until this day comes because like like no one's going to be batting an eye or turning their head before all these events take place like the the accountability is going to stay steadfast from now until the end of the age yeah yeah that's really good uh, uh it reminds me of kids and santa claus you better be good going to end up on the naughty list like Santa sees everything, right? And, you know, there is a true aspect to that in terms of God. Yeah, okay, he does see, but it's it's maybe the, the more adult version is along the lines of, you need to understand that you are, and I'm going to say literally, walking alongside God mm. at all times. You are walking together through this life. He is fully present and aware of it all. And that's, it's a very different way of viewing it. Uh, But, you know, we see the truth in both. Yeah. All right. Anything else? No. Okay. So, uh, again, for what it's worth, we're still talking about, you know, the end, but let's, uh, let's keep going here. Where are we at? Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 41 says this. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. All right. So there are aspects of this little section that seem to mirror or, or, or be a bit of a repeat from some things we've already talked about before. 
You could go back if you wanted. You could listen to Gospels number 94, Gospels number 95, uh, and it even has a little bit about the vultures in, in there as well. But Jesus, he wants to paint a picture of what it's going to look like at the end when he returns. He wants to communicate the suddenness. So we talked about that with the, the flash of lightning and the, the transition verses at 27 and 28. And he uses the example of Noah. For everyone other than Noah, and maybe like his immediate little family there, the eight that ended up on the ark or something, for everyone else, life seemed completely normal. I mean, what's more normal than, you know, eating, drinking, marrying, whatever, all that's just normal. So you could say that either there were no signs or they were ignoring them. Now, when you read the text, kind of looks like the only sign, if you want to call it that, would be Noah himself. He seemed to be proclaiming during the entire, what was it, 100 years he was building his ark <laughs> or whatever. It was a long time. Um, so, so maybe you could call that a sign. They're ignoring that. Or maybe the ark itself, this dude's building an ark, wh- whatever, what's that all about? So, so you could say that there were signs that they were ignoring, but even if those were signs, I mean, you got to imagine, imagine there were tons and tons of people who knew nothing about Noah, knew nothing about the ark, right? So, so in that sense, you could say, look, there are no signs. But the flood came and it swept them away. It was sudden. It was without warning. And I mean, even if you argue it wasn't completely without warning, I mean, they definitely weren't listening, whatever. Now, this seems quite different from the warnings about the destruction of the temple. With the temple, many signs accompanied, and they spanned a good bit of time. And let's just be clear, 40 years. So with the coming of the Son of Man, there will also be signs. Okay, he talked about a bunch of them. But as we can see, they're being presented as if everything is happening very quickly or in quick succession. The the point being, there's no real opportunity to prepare. Kind of like, hey, once you see these signs, it's already too late. With the temple thing, that wasn't true. You used the signs to know when to get out. Here, there's nothing like that. You see the signs, it's too late. You're expected to be prepared always at all times. It's kind of a big difference. Again, it's why we're we're seeing the earlier part being about the temple, the latter part being about the second coming. And we have to talk about it again, Samuel. We've covered this before, but who were the ones who were taken by the flood? In my understanding, the ones who were taken are the ones who drowned. The exactly. ones who are left are the ones who survived. Yes, it is the wicked who are taken in judgment. Who remained or was saved or left behind, if we could use that phrase again? Who was that? Noah and his lineage of righteousness. Yeah, it was the righteous who were left behind. So so this is... The exact opposite of the, the very common rapture myth that's so prevalent in the church. Now, uh, I've had an opportunity in between then and now, got to talk to a couple different people, not completely convinced, okay? And it's, it's interesting. And, and, you know, I give them credit for, for the way they're thinking and all that. That, that. That's the best thing in the world. They're really using their brains. They have this perspective that no, 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 no. It was Noah was the one who was taken because he was taken to safety, and the others were left behind for destruction. And it's like, okay, well, you know what? I totally hear you. I, I, I get having that perspective. And let's go a little further. If if we were to run with that, then. We still have that issue of, well, but wait, where to where are the righteous taken, right? Because usually when you have the rapture, 
uh, theory, you've got the idea that they're taken to heaven. But, you know, I'm going to say, look, scripturally, rapture to heaven, that is in no way a defensible option. It doesn't fit with everything that's led up to it, and it's super weak when you actually try to prove it, you know, in Thessalonians, whatever. I, I, I get it. It's a, it's a misunderstanding, and, and worst case, it's just an outright fabrication from the text. The closest concept, an idea, or event that would match what you see in those scriptures that are used as a defense of rapture to heaven, well, that's the ingathering. We talked about it just a little bit earlier up in verse 31. Now, it has similarities to what we paint today as this idea of a rapture, but people are gathered to Israel. They're gathered to Jerusalem to be a part of his kingdom, his rule and reign on the earth. So if you want to, you know, sort of do the opposite of what we're doing and you want to say that, no, it's the righteous that are being taken, well, at least make sure you're having them taken to the right place. If if you read... now. After I've said all this, if you go back and you read 1 Thessalonians, what is it, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, if you read that with the ingathering in mind, don't, don't force it to be heaven. Just open, a, open your mind for a second, read it that way. You'll see that it actually fits quite nicely. And the reason that there's value in that is because it fits with all of the story that precedes it and all of the expectations that precede it. So, I don't know. I'm going to leave it at that. I probably said more than I wanted to or meant to or whatever, but there you go. Paul, I have a uh, possible really cool remez uh, going on here with uh, your your question about determining where the righteous are taken. Um, ah, so I'm, I'm thinking about this connection that Jesus is making between the imagery going back in Genesis with the story of Noah, the flood and the ark, and then the establishing of, you know, the mess, the literal messianic kingdom on earth. Um, so the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question, where the righteous taken was in Genesis eight, after the flood subsides, in verse 4, it says, Then in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. So it's interesting. It says, like, we think about the ark and the righteous inside. They end up on the top of a mountain. And then my mind goes to, oh, wait. Like, there's prophecy that talks about God establishing his kingdom on a mountain. Yeah. Uh, and then my mind went to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, and this prophecy says, Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So... I don't know. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Super cool, yeah. See, again, and, and you know what? Two people can enter into this the same way and get different different results. I get that. But we must, with everything in us, uh, every amount of in, intelligence, smarts, thinking, whatever it is that you can apply— to the problem, you have to try to make the whole Bible make sense. You've got to bring it all together because it really is just one big story. Mm. And and so, yeah, these things that you're bringing up, so good. And that's why, it's another reason why this idea of rapture to heaven, it just, it comes out of nowhere. And it completely ignores stuff that is already there. And so I think... I think it's just a big error that's that's very common. People like it. I don't know. There's something attractive about the story, whatever, but it just doesn't work. But anyway, that's only a minor part of this. The, the big part here is, you know, the idea that the, the kingdom, his second coming, whatever, it's going to be sudden, unexpected, blah, 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 all that. Anything else on this section, Samuel? Uh, no, other than just the imagery. I was thinking there's another phrase in the Talmud that says that, Every verse of Torah 
is like a diamond that has like, I think that I can't remember the number is, I know it's in the seventies, like 70 faces or 72 faces. And they're arguing that like, you know, they're for every verse in the Torah, there are a potential of 70 different ways that you can look at it um, and glean Ah. wisdom and beauty from. So just take that in mind as you continue to wrestle and try to build those connections with the one big story. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. Like it. Like it. All right. Well, let's let's move on. See what else he's going to say here. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 to 44. Uh, this has parallels in Mark chapter 13, verses 34 to 37, and Luke chapter 21, verses 34 to 36. Wow. Those are amazingly close. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to read from Matthew. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Okay. Now, you know, first pass, you you know, that might be a little confusing because he's talking about, well, wait a second, where's this house and master and thief? Where'd all this come from? Whatever. All right. Here we begin. Jesus is telling of six different parables. Okay. Now, to be fair, people number them differently, the actual total count and, you know, whatever. We're calling it six. And these are parables about the end of the age, his second coming, right? So this is now, we, I think we've gone on from the, the first and second question on to since he's, he's told them about the end of the age, he's now going to use parables to, to sort of bring all of this to clarity, okay? That's kind of what's going on here. Now, in Mark and Luke, well, they kind of have some hints in their text of this specific parable, and even maybe some, some hints of some of the parables that are coming up. But what we're going to do, we're going to leave the Mark and Luke section here together with this part only and not try to break it up, because they at least make sense here, because all three of them together are making some sort of reference, some sort of point about this idea of staying awake. So we're going we're gonna to stick with that. Now, in Matthew, and, and to just say it clearly, this is a parable. Jesus, he, he's starting a parable about this master of a house. So, if this master had been privy to some secret info about thieves coming for his goods, well, quite naturally, I'm sure you can imagine, he would have prepared and even stayed awake to prevent an unwanted outcome. Now, who's who? Well, you are the master of the house. And talk about a twist. (laughs) Who's the thief, Samuel? Apparently it's Jesus coming back, which is crazy. (laughs) Right, right. So I don't know if you remember this. People freaked out about, uh, well, there was a book and a movie. What the heck was it called? Maybe The Shack, something like that. But, oh, my gosh, people freaked out because uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure Jesus is being represented as a black woman. If I got this right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, g- God, uh, oh, God like was? the father, was a oh, black God. woman. Okay, and then okay. Jesus was still, like, Middle Eastern, and then the spirit was, like, a Asian, middle, like, a Eastern oh, okay, or okay. Eastern woman. Okay, okay. All right. So, but people were all freaked out because, oh, you can't represent me, right? <laughs> it's like... Right here in our text, we've seen Jesus represented as some some unusual things. Here's one. In this parable, the thief represents him. That's crazy. Now, are we saying that Jesus is a thief? Of course not. That's not the point of the parable. I'm just I'm just pointing it out. It's like, man, you know, quit freaking out about things. You know, you're you're, you're making something uh, bigger than it needs to be. But 
you can read about this idea of a, of a thief coming. Second Peter chapter three verse ten, First Thessalonians chapter five verse two, Revelation chapter three verse three, Revelation chapter sixteen verse fifteen. It's a theme. It keeps showing up. Okay, so don't be too freaked out by it. Now, in Mark's telling. Uh, Mark has a a man with servants, and each one is given charge over something, including a doorkeeper. So in his version, it's the doorkeeper that has to stay awake, and you'll see that kind of alludes to something coming up. But the doorkeeper always has to be ready for his master's return. And of course, you know, we think of Jesus' second coming, and then other people, you you may think it's God, you may think it's Jesus, whatever, but... you are the doorkeeper and 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 you're waiting for God or Jesus right you got to be prepared keep keep your eyes peeled now luke he talks a little bit about people who are being distracted by the cares of life uh as if that too is some form of sleep which if you think about it that that actually makes some sense. If we're supposed to be awake and vigilant about God and the kingdom and his will and righteousness and all of that stuff, but instead you're kind of, you know, distracted by the cares of this world, it's like you're lulled into something other than, than what you're supposed to be interested in. And so instead of being awake, you are asleep, that kind of thing. So he warns that they must stay awake so that they might stand before their master. Again, Jesus, whatever. Now, Luke... He also addresses the signs that accompany the end. He mentions that they are sudden, right? So that's, uh, uh, it's going to be a continuing theme. But by staying awake and praying for strength, we can escape unharmed or unaffected by all of the fill-in-the-blank, the signs, or maybe it's the tribulation or whatever. But you... You, the reader, the, the hearer of the parable, you are the one who's the potentially distracted one. So that's a thing. So you're the doorkeeper, you're the distracted one, you're the master of the house, whatever. But all three of these are reinforcing just some common themes, and we're going to see it as we continue. The end will be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be unpredictable. And we get some hint of it being, you know, a future an unknown time. That's going to become clearer as we continue onward. But instead of trying to figure out when to be ready, the point the, the, the point that they're driving home is that we should live always ready, always prepared. And how do we do that? By staying vigilant in our duty, our duty of faithfulness and loyalty toward God and his righteousness, many things are going to come and try to distract you, and we can refer to them as thieves or sleep or the cares of life or whatever it might be, but we need to remain awake and prepared. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, like, if we're continuing this concept in this parable of Jesus being the thief— um, and the thing that's getting, you could say it's stolen or taken away when the thief comes. Maybe I'm misinterpreting it, uh, but I, I'm kind of seeing it as like when, when the thief comes, when Jesus comes, like your life in the finite sense, your life before judgment is now over. It's 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 taken away. And I think maybe Jesus is, trying to push his disciples to and other hearers of the gospels later like don't miss out on the call to try to lean into living out the best that you can in terms of being truly human like yeah like mirroring me in being the true human the true son of man yeah um, and it, this is going to sound way off in left field and like hopefully not heretical. It, it maybe if we can glean something spiritual from a guy who wasn't all that spiritual. But <laughs> there's this quote from Henry David Thoreau that I remember that makes me think of this parable. Um, I'll just it's just like a sentence. He's talking about like going off into the woods and living a life of solitude and trying to find meaning and wisdom. He says. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, 
to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn from what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. And that, that last part just makes me think, like, Jesus does not want our reality to be, like, when he comes, when the thief comes, this realization, like, oh my gosh, like, my whole life went before me, and I actually did not live to my potential. I, yeah. Like, I did not lean into the humanity that he was calling me to. So I, I think that's a convicting and a powerful message hidden oh. within this parable. Yeah, that is really good. That's a really good way to look at it. Uh, that's also, there's some similar kind of line from uh, the Braveheart movie, something like that. Uh, not not all trend, all men die, but not all men truly live, or something like mm-hmm. that. I don't remember what it was. But yeah, so that's good. And and when you when you translate that to, yeah, and what is living really about? It's about trying to image him. That's what we were created for. And if we don't do it, you know, could we be surprised at the end going, uh-oh, I thought I was in, but I haven't done anything, hmm. you know, on his behalf, whatever. It's Yeah, it's good. Anything else? No. All right. Well, we're going to be pushing it. The next one's <laughs> a little bit long, but you know what? We're going to do it anyway, because... Someday, we're going to get to the end of the Gospels. This one may help us get there sooner. So here we go. Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, He will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ouch! Or possibly gulp. I mean, that's that's pretty rough. So, in parable number two here, now we could say that Jesus, or some people like to say God, whatever, is the master, and you are the servant over the household the one that's supposed to feed the others. So your duty in the parable is to give them their food at the proper time. It's a very interesting phrase. This is alluding to how we all, as a united body, must care for one another. You, as a servant of God, you may have a different looking life and a different set of people and you know all that than someone else but we are to care for one another for those among us and in some sense even for those outside of us to to give them their food at the proper time food may refer to like charity kind of things actual food clothing whatnot it could also mean teaching and instruction and and that kind of stuff So now whether this is through, I don't know, your own natural gifting, or maybe you get some good training, or or maybe there's uh, instruction, we might call that discipleship, or maybe it's just maturity in you through time, walking with God, whatever. Okay, some of us are going to do more than others. It's okay. It doesn't mean that someone else is better than another or that someone is wrong or someone is right. We're, we're, our, our life, our walk, it's unique. It's different. So sometimes we receive more care, and sometimes we're the one that's doing more of the caring. But the point is we're just addressing those entrusted to us. So, so the first of two contrasted outcomes is the servant who does well. He's the one who properly cares for the other servants. He fulfills his potential to some degree. And that goes to what you were just talking about, Samuel, that being truly human, right? He will 
be blessed by his master and rewarded with even more responsibility. Side note, yeah, that's actually a reward. (laughs) But let's go on. Over all his possessions, uh, it, it makes sense, you know, in the parable, right? You you were over some of the other servants, whatever, the other help, uh, whatever you want to call it. Now he's going to put you over all of his possessions. So in the parable, that totally makes sense. Now, if you try to translate that to God, okay, there's a little bit of hyperbole there. You're not going to be put over all of everything that God has. I mean, Jesus filled that role, but we won't. He's being, I guess you could say in some sense, when we partner with him in rule in the kingdom of the world to come, maybe in that sense, it could be true, but whatever. The point is he's being responsible in the absence of direct supervision. What did we call that in the past, Samuel? Uh, I actually don't know. The journey parable. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now there's an an alternate outcome, and and it's when the servant does not do well. He thinks he is not seen Mm. because the master is away. And we we talked about that not long ago, right? He thinks that he can get away with not doing his proper duty. In this case, it's caring for the other servants. But he thinks he can do it because the master is away. He spirals downward, even to the point of mistreating the other ser- servants. He's, he's not just failing to care for them. He actually goes beyond that and starts mistreating them. He abuses his power and authority. And, I mean, you can see it. He even he, he begins to commune with what, what we would think of as the dregs of the earth. I mean, they're, they're definitely non-servants, but it's the, the drunkards, etc. He sinks low. And again, it goes back to that. He thinks that, that he's not walking side by side with God through this whole thing. Mm. It's, very, it's very amazing. So now, again, aligning this with the, the running theme that we have already seen, and we're going to see more of, whether you are the servant who does well or not, the master, let's say Jesus, returns at a time that is unexpected and unpredictable. Now here, it, we also seem to get more explicitly this addition of the idea that it is a long delay. Now, for the servant who does not do well, this results in punishment or judgment. It says that he's cut in pieces, or uh, another way to translate it is that he is cut in two I don't care how many pieces it is, it's quite <laughs> severe, okay? Now, now it, it would be hyperbole in the sense that, okay, not everyone who's going to end up in this role of being the wicked servant, okay, they're not going to literally all be cut into p- to pieces. It's, it's not speaking that way. What's being communicated is the, the, the sincerity of the judgment and the severity of the the judgment. That part is going to be accurate. There's going to be death and there's going to be punishment in Gehenna. Uh, Paul, how do, why do you think it's Gehenna? It's not literally listed in the text. Well, I'm making that leap because of the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've seen it uh, be associated with Gehenna before, and we probably, uh, maybe before we're done, we may even see it again, but whatever. It's, I'm saying that's Gehenna. That's why. Now, interestingly, This wicked servant is being placed with the hypocrites. That is to say that they will have the same end as the hypocrites. Now, who has famously been called hypocrites by Jesus, Samuel? Uh, Pharisees. Yeah, some of the Pharisees. And we saw it especially in the seven woes. We just went through a bunch of those, right? And so you're going to be placed with them. You're going to have the same end as them. So, you know, this seems bad all the way around. So, that's all I got on that one. What do you got, Samuel? Um, this is going to make it sound like I don't agree with you in something, but that's not what I'm saying because I definitely 
can see uh, where this could be Gehenna with the weeping and gnashing of teeth mm-hmm. uh, imagery, but part of me also thinks about this whole overarching idea that we've talked about today concerning the ingathering uh, with the Messianic kingdom and how ah. we talked about previously how Gehenna, weeping of gnashing of teeth, is, it's referring to the imagery is referring to an actual place in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem where yeah. they took their trash, where the poor lived, like the smoke and the stench would make you want to weep and gnash your teeth. And <laughs> right. um, part of me wonders if there's there could be this potential imagery of within the end gathering, you have these people who have been brought from the four corners of the earth to Jerusalem to be able to relish and celebrate the beauties and the joys of God returned, you know, through King Messiah on the earth. But then there are also people who are still there who are not given invites into that in gathering. And they're sitting on the outside looking in, um, wishing that, you know, the realization that thunder and lightning, like, oh crap, like all this stuff that, I had heard or people had talked to me about is actually true. Now it's too late. Like I'm, I'm getting to see the goodness of God, and now I'm not going to be a part of it. I'm on the outside looking in. Um, yeah. To me, that I'm just saying that that could be another option as well. Yeah, that's right. They they could end up, you know, sort of in that party of those who are uh, the big banquet for the birds. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> right? So, yeah, no, I I totally get the connection that you're seeing, and I think it's good. I think it, it enhances, you know, our, our view, our imagery of what's going on here. So, yeah, that's good. I like it. And it, it fits with, you know, if you look back at verse 31, I mean, it doesn't explain the cutting in the pieces part, but at the end of verse 51, where it says, and we'll cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites, like what you had said yeah. previously. It's like those people are being put in a separate camp to themselves, those that yeah. refuse to believe and repent and re- pursue righteousness. Yeah, no, that's that's good. That's good. Yeah, it's as interesting as all these things are, you, you pull it back and you go, okay, so super, super simple kid-like takeaway. What is it? Well, be prepared, be ready. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's it. That, that That's all this is about. But it's important that we see all this imagery. I mean, Jesus is sharing it. He wants people to understand the, the, the emphasis on what's at stake here. This is life and death. And, you know, there, there's such a difference between people who talk about situations that are life or death and how people actually respond or act or behave in a truly life or death situation. And I, I think part of what's being done here, what's, what's trying to be communicated is to say, look, you need to, you need to view this like it's actual life and death, because it is. It's not just your life here on the earth. We're talking about eternal life and eternal death. This is a big deal, and you need to give it its proper weight or whatever. But yeah. Ah, good stuff, but that's that's two of the parables. We got four to go. Wow. Yeah, but we're if, not going to do them on this episode. Yeah, yeah. If our if our listeners could see my video screen right now, they would see me holding up three fingers in the air, saying, "Always be prepared." <laughs> I hope I hope people got that reference. Yeah, you know what? We're not even going to tell them what that is. We're going to make them either search or just know. But yeah, yeah, that's that's a good one. Always be prepared. So, you know what? Uh, let's be done for now, and then we'll pick up the parables in the next episode. Okie dokie. Oh! Thanks for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to send us an email, please message us at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.